This podcast and the many that follow are proudly brought to you by our partner, Titleist, the number one ball in golf. Now, as it relates to earning an edge, our friends at Titleist have been the leaders since the early 1900s. And in order to compete and win at the highest level, frankly, there's no room for second best. For this reason, the best players in the world trust Titleist. I'm Corey Lundberg, and this is the Earn Your Edge podcast. For the last 25 years, there's been one consistent and ubiquitous presence on the range of tour events, working with the best players in the game, including Greg Norman and then Tiger Woods as they were number one players in the world, Butch Harmon. And while Butch is still at it and going strong, the man standing behind the last three U.S. Open champs is his son, Claude, working with Brooks Kepka and Dustin Johnson, along with Ricky Fowler and Jimmy Walker. And on today's episode, Cameron interviews Claude, who will give us a peek behind the scenes, the stories behind those wins and provide us some insight on what sets those players apart from the pack, how they earn their edge. And as you can imagine, the wealth and breadth of experience you would gain as son to probably the greatest coach of the modern era, grandson to a master's champion, and now coach to multiple major champions is unlike anyone else in golf. Claude clearly has a unique background as a world-class instructor, and he's got plenty of wisdom to share with you. But there's some really powerful personality traits that he has that you should listen for. He possesses great humility and self-awareness. He's really candid uh, about the fact that there were certain advantages afforded to him as son of Butch Harmon. And rather than the entitlement that that may afflict others with in the same situation, it seems to have bred a real altruism and desire to help others. Uh, It's what makes him such a magnetic and appealing guy to not only the players that he coaches, but the viewers of his commentary on Sky Sports and coaches like me. Every time that I've been around Claude, I'm always just a bit taken aback at the uncommon kindness that he has, how charitable he is with his time and advice and just willingness to help others along. And I think you'll hear that passion for lifting others up when you listen in. So we're really excited to share this discussion between Cam and Claude. As someone who's had that opportunity to sit at dinner and enjoy these two talking golf, I can tell you just how much I've valued the chance to be like a sponge and soak up as much of their wisdom as possible. It's unreal to think that seven of the last 14 majors have been won by their clients. So enjoy being a fly on the wall as these two discuss Claude's development, his tutelage under his father, and the various insights that he's gained from coaching the best in the world. He's clearly found a way to earn an edge and separate from the pack and help his players do the same. So sit back and enjoy episode seven of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Claude Harmon III. I want to welcome you to the Earn Your Edge podcast. By passion and practice, we at Altus have driven to decode the difference makers that high performers possess, the ways and means they use to earn their edge, to create separation from the mass, to leave mediocrity in the rearview mirror and travel this pathway to mastery. Be it through nature or nurture or a mix of both, the journey to uncover these things is the journey that we're on. Having spent a lot of time in admiration of Claude Harmon, I've spent a good amount of time around him and our past cross-traveling the world, and I know him to, cut, to be cut from the same cloth with an aligned ethos toward not only player development, but also human development. He's a person that needs no introduction to the golf world. However, given our audience covers a wide gamut of demographics and interest, I think it's important that we cover the territory of background. So Claude Hammond III in the golf world, as I said before, needs no introduction and nor clarification of association to the Harmon family. Important note, however, is the most recent triumph of Brooks Kepka, just one of Claude's stable at the US Open two weeks ago. 
which amazingly secured the three-peat. Yes, that's right, three consecutive US Opens for Claude students. And I can speak from experience when I say all of us glancing sideways in the range at events in hopes to figure out his secrets. Claude is coach to multiple of the world's best players, but I'd love to start our conversation off by asking in your own, way, own words, who is Claude Harmon? That's a good question. I'm still trying to figure that one out, Cam. Um, you know, I, I just turned 49 at the beginning of May, and I feel like I'm, you know, continuing to kind of move in the right direction. And, you know, we've talked many times about, you know, our goals and, and our jobs. And, you know, I've always been really passionate about trying to help golfers, you know, get better at, at whatever level. And, you know, I've been unbelievably lucky to work with some great players. And, um, you know, it's always fun to kind of watch the journey of, of what they do. And, you know, I think of myself as someone that's, um, you know, definitely always been a giver and, um, you know, has always tried to work as hard and learn as much as I possibly could to try and, you know, get better at what I do. I think that your family speaks to that legacy. And I was going to ask a question. In fact, I typically do in these types of situations. What were those roots in development that were indicators towards getting into coaching or in this case, coaching of golf? But I think we we know that. But was that something from a young age that you felt like you were destined to do? Or were you the, on the other side of that spectrum, a kid that kind of wanted, wanted to forge his own path and rebel against what um, your family's lineage, so to speak? Yeah, you know, Cam, I never really played a lot of golf growing up. You know, I played other sports. You know, I was, a, you know, I played football. I played a lot of tennis. So I was, you know, a two, three sport athlete in high school coming from a big golf family. You know, my dad, he grew up when, you know, he was in his teens, you know, and his father was a master's champion. And you know, I think he kind of felt the pressure to try and follow in his father's footsteps. So I never played junior golf. I never played a lot of high school golf. You know, my dad never really pushed golf on me. And, you know, I've got, you know, my father was a golf instructor. I, you know, I, he had three brothers. They were all golf instructors and then my grandfather. But what I did start doing when I was in high school, when I was 15, 16 years old, I started to help out you know, watching my dad give golf lessons and, you know, we did a fam the, the brothers did a, a summer golf school every year and I'd always go along for that and kind of hang out and set up the range and set up golf balls and, you know, kind of shadow and, you know, watch my dad teach. And that was kind of at the beginning, it was in the mid, mid eighties. That's right around the time video cameras started to kind of come out in golf instruction. My dad was really big on using video. So my job was to kind of set the video up and, you know, video, you know, his lessons. And that's really kind of where my passion started. I, unlike most golf instructors, I, you know, like yourself, I never played, you know, my, my number one interest in golf was, was golf instruction and watching, you know, and giving lessons. And so that's basically what I've always done. So I think I'm a little bit of a, you know, an anomaly there. There's most people, you know, my father played the tour, you know, my grandfather was a great player. All my uncles played at a, you know, very high level. And, you know, you, you you played college golf, and I think that's kind of been the norm. But the path that I took is, you know, my background for golf instruction has been 100%. You know, I learned at a very young age and, and watched how to give golf lessons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, and it kind of brings to mind that next question, because the game sense, the practical or applied knowledge of playing a sport was something that you didn't necessarily have, but you've certainly been exposed two of the best names in the game and be it Tiger Woods, be it Greg Norman, be it all of the legacy of information that you've learned from your dad, from the Ben Hogan's of the world and the list could go on and we'd be here for several minutes. 
describing just those names, from a professional development standpoint, how have you closed those gaps given that uh, without that experience? And is there anything you'd, you'd like to share to the coach audience out there that says, look here, turn over this stone here or there to um, expand their, I guess, uh, operating range? Yeah, you know, Cam, I was unbelievably lucky. I don't think I could have gotten as far as I've gotten with very little playing background without, you know, being around the greatest players, you know, really of, of the game. You know, my father, you know, started working with Steve Elkington, was his first real student that he worked with. And then, you know, he worked with Davis Love in the early 90s and then, you know, Greg Norman. So, and then obviously Tiger Woods. I, I videotaped the first golf lesson Tiger ever had with my dad in August of 1993. So I think I learned at a very young age in watching my dad teach you know, I used to always say that you can't guess when you're working with great players. Uh, you have to be, you have to know what you're doing. You have to, you have to be right. And so I think I learned at a really young age in watching, you know, how, um, you know, how he worked with players and, and what he tried to do and, um, you know, his communication skills. I mean, to me, that's one of the, the reasons why he's always been so successful is his communication skills and, and, you know, how much he cared, how much of a cheerleader he was, and just really how he went about trying to, to give his information to the player. And so, you know, that's really kind of always been the mantra that I've always tried to, to say in my head to myself is, listen, you've got you've to figure out a way to, to, to make something that's difficult, easy for the player to understand, easy for the player to kind of get your point across. And my dad used to tell me when I was younger, you know, Fix one thing that's going to fix four or five or six things. Don't try and fix four or five things individually. Find out, you know, his, his number one thing that he, he always told me is there's, there's a cancer of, of the golf swing that somebody's struggling with. When your lessons come to you, they're dying of cancer. They've got something that is going to kill them, that's going to kill their golf game, that's killing their ability to progress and to move forward. And you've got to find out what is the one main cancer of the golf swing and fix that. He said, you know, most golfers that come to you have a broken arm or broken leg. You know, they don't feel well, but they're dying of their golf swing has a cancer. And you've got to figure out what that is. And, you know, I just have always tried to approach it, Cam, like that is to figure out what is the main thing that is killing their ability to score killing their ability to have a repeatable motion and, you know, really try and get to that and, and fix that. And, and, you know, the domino effect, you know, you and I've talked about it many times, the domino effect of getting to what the one root cause is, is huge. And I think a lot of, you know, instructors that I look at now, you know, are trying to do, you know, they're trying to fix four or five different things. They're, they're kind of, all over of what they're trying to do. And I've always just, I guess I've just been lucky in watching to me, you know, the best golf instructor that I've ever seen. My father, he's been the best. And the reason why he's been so successful is just to figure out what is going to help them hit the golf ball more solid, you know, almost immediately. And I think if you can do that and think about it in those simplistic terms of, you know, what do you need to fix? That's going to fix all the other things you, you want to fix to me, that's kind of the goal. And it's, you know, still what I do, you know, today, you know, it's still something that I say to myself every day. I think what I do a lot of times is, you know, a head football coach, you know, certainly at the elite level that, 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 that I'm at with tour players, 
you know, I think of myself as like the head football coach and there's an offensive coordinator and there's a defensive coordinator and there's all of these things because you're on a team, you know, you're on a team, you know, Jordan's got his team, you know, Brooks and DJ and Ricky Fowler and Jimmy Walker, they've all got their team and, and you've got to try and figure out, you know, what's the best way for the team to, to, to kind of succeed. And, you know, there's times that you need to, you know, give a lot of information. There's times, you know, that, that you don't. And, you know, I think, Finding a way to, to get your point across and have the student understand what you're telling them, you know, to me is, is what I spend the majority of my time yeah. doing. And, you know, I, I try and pick as many different brains as, as, as possible. And, you know, I was lucky this Super Bowl weekend, I went to this um, summit, you know, where there, where there was all these people from other sports, uh, you know, there's the head of Sky Cycling, um, you know, there's the head of uh, Gareth Southgate, who is the England you know, football team manager, they're over at the World Cup now. There are a couple of guys from, you know, the Australian, you know, national team in rugby. And there were just all these different people. And we just sat in a room and had dinner, you know, at a steakhouse and just talked about how you work with players, how you work with teams, how you work with the, the head of talent for Cirque du Soleil was there and, and how you manage all of this stuff. And it was just a fascinating thing to sit around a table of just other people from other sports and just listen on how they coach, how they prepare. And, you know, that, that's to me the, the thing that, that I learn a lot from and, and try and take into, you know, what, what I do when I teach, for sure. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. Shifting gears here, how has a failure or apparent failure when it was happening to you set you up for later success? Can you describe an experience that stands out clear in your mind? Yeah, I mean, you know, we started, you know, I, we started our golf school in Las Vegas probably 1998. Um, I was the director of instruction there. And that was kind of right around the time, you know, Tiger was kind of on the rise. And, you know, really from 1998 till 2001, we saw the best players in the world. And we saw the, you know, probably arguably the greatest player of all time, you know, Tiger Woods. I was around him a lot. And, you know, I thought I basically knew everything in 2001. And from what I realized, and then I left the golf school, I was working with Adam Scott and Darren Clark at the time and left our golf school in Vegas and went to Europe and, you know, started traveling on the European tour. And once I got over there and kind of got out of, you know, away from the umbrella of my father, I realized that I really didn't know much. I just kind of knew what he knew and knew what to say, what he said. And to go back to what I said, you know, earlier, it was only then that I realized that I had to kind of go out and figure out what. I believed in the golf swing and what I believed in helping players and stuff like that. So, you know, to leave the umbrella of, of the golf school and, you know, leave the, the ability to just stand and watch my dad give lessons to Tiger Woods and just say to other players, hey, do this. And, you know, let's be honest, it worked at the time. But, <laughs> you know, I think getting out and really the first real player I worked with was, you know, Trevor Immelman and, and, you know, I was, you know, I was scared, you know, I didn't know if I was going to mess it up. And I just remembered what my dad said, you know, you can't, can't be wrong. And, you know, and 
I purposely didn't really kind of seek anybody else's advice really for the first time in my life and just basically, you know, tried to see if I could take what I learned, take what, you know, I wanted to try and have some, a player do with the problems that he was having. And, um, you know, scary. And, you know, Trevor had, you know, a lot of success. And, you know, that was kind of the thing that, that started me kind of moving forward. But, you know, the failures that you have, I think you can't be afraid, you know, to fail. And I think if you're going to work with players and if you're going to try and work with good players, you know, they're not going to win every tournament. You know, they're, they're going to have, you know, ups and downs. And, and, and I think that's where I think you have to be able to say to some, you know, Brooks and I on, on Sunday at, at, at Shinnecock um, before his final round in the U.S. Open, we worked on the exact same things that we worked on five years ago the day I met him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that one of the things that, you know, the negative effect of the Tiger era, Cam, is, is you know, his want to constantly change his golf swing to kind of change what he's doing and change things. And I, I see a lot of players like you do that are constantly coming in looking to overhaul things to try and, you know, make these big sweeping changes. And I think when you work with players that don't have success, it's easy to just go, you know what, I'm going to change everything. I'm going to get the player to do something different. We're going to try something different. And I always go back to what I heard, you know, Bob Rotella tell a player once, you know, Bob's always wanted players to go to the, the golf course with no swing thoughts, you know, none. Just go out, play, no swing thoughts. And I remember a player saying, listen, I want to go to a, a golf, want to go play around a golf with one swing thought. He wanted two or three, but, you know, Bob said, listen, if you, I'll let you take one. But here's the thing. You have to keep that one swing thought for the entire round because after six holes, if you go bogey double, you're going to throw the swing thought out. What the hell did you take it to the golf course in the first place for? Right. And I think as instructors – you can't kind of bounce around when players, you know, are struggling. You have to dig in and say, listen, I know you're struggling. I know your results right now are what you are not what you want. And I know you're having some failures and we're having, you know, a tough time. But these are the things that are going to help you improve. And these are the things that are going to help you get better and help you become more assistant and improve. And I think as an instructor, you have to cheerlead and you have to dig in when you mm-hmm. have failures and say, God, listen, whoever it is, this is what we're doing. This is the direction that we're going to go. We're on the right track. We're going to do these things. And if we keep doing these things, you're going to start to see the results. It's That's the coaching role. You have to dig in and, and make the player believe that you're on the right track. And that's what you know team sports do. You know, when Tom Brady throws a couple of interceptions, he doesn't want Bill Belichick going, you know what, we scrap everything and we run a completely different offense, a completely different scheme that we haven't practiced, that we don't know, and we're just going to change everything because right now it isn't working. What those guys do and what the team sports do with it, you, you've spent time around these guys, Cam, they double down. Yep. They go, listen, this is what we do. Do this. You know, that, I've always been a huge admirer of Nick Saban. You listen to Nick Saban and you listen to the way that he talks about you know, football and game plans and practice and all of those things, you know, yes, you've got to, you, as an instructor, you can try and, you know, you always want to be open to change. But I see too many times that, you know, the player isn't, you know, playing well, you know, we just scrap everything and we try something completely different. And then the player is really confused because they're like, wait a minute, you were telling me two weeks ago to do this. Now you're telling me to do something completely different. 
you know, and, and I think it kind of can sometimes put them in no man's land. So I think if you, if you are going to get knocked down, the failures that I've had with players and I've had some, you know, believe me, I've had some big ones with guys that, you know, have had chances to win tournaments and haven't done it. And, you know, they come back and they said, listen, you know, what the hell? I mean, what do I do now? And I think that's where you really have to dig in and say, listen, this is what I believe is going to help you get better. And you draw the picture to them. And that's, to me, where trying to keep things simple for players, to me, is 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 the point where that works. And you, you draw the picture for them. And successes are easy. You know that, Cam. You know, when they're winning tournaments and stuff, it's it's easy. It's when they struggle that you have to fight. As an instructor, you have to get in there and care and say, listen, this is what we're going to do and this is how you're going to get better. So, I, you know, the, the failures, you know, help you get better as an instructor and they help you, you know, figure out what you believe more. Yeah, something's coming to mind as you're describing this. And I love the way I love to listen to you. And you have such an authority, such a presence, such a, a command when you're talking and i feel like that's an integral part of what it is that makes you a successful coach and one of the questions that i had was when you're at your best is that a cornerstone trait that you would call it the authority that you deliver your message with the certainty and confidence you deliver your message with or or is it not and if it's not are there any other factors that you would say when i'm at my best i'm coaching in this mode or or gear I try never, you know, to, to panic when I'm coaching, you know, certainly, you know, at the elite level, at the tour level, you know, I think that you can't ever let the player can't ever think that you're guessing. <laughs> you know, to me, that was the one thing that I watched my father always do. I watched him do, you know, specifically up close for 12 years with Tiger Woods. You know, you know, I remember how he would say to Tiger, listen, this is the direction we're going to go. He would take input from Tiger and they would come up with a plan. And that's the other thing I think that is important, Cam, and we've talked about that as well. You have to listen to the student. I think it's easy, again, like I said, the student, you know, I see a lot of times that instructors that I watch are talking at the student. You know, they're talking at them as opposed to talking to them. And, you know, I think you're always wanting the student and the player to kind of be on board because they're on the same team that you're on. You know, I, you know, I'm lucky in that, you know, Brooks buys into the team concept of things. You know, Brooks likes having a team around him and he feels like he's as much a part of, of the team and on the team as, as those of us that are lucky enough to be around him and on his team. So there are times where things get tough. You know, you've gone through this with the players you work with, you know, when they're not playing gun, when they're hitting bad shots, when they shoot bad scores, when they miss the cut. You know, I was in the locker room on, on Friday and watched, you know, my, I'm sitting with Brooks and Bubba Watson and we watched, you know, Jordan, you know, make bogey from the middle of the fairway on the last hole to miss the cut and then walk into the locker room and you walk in and you see that kind of how much it means to him, how hard that is to take. You know, he's missed a cut at the U.S. Open you know, he had a chance to mm -hmm. par the last hole. I mean, you can see how much that affects him. And when you know that and when you're around that and you see how how hard that is on the players and how how much it means to them and, and how that bogey is just, you know, I mean, it's just, you, you know him, it's eating him up inside. And so when you know that, I think it helps you, to, it's always helped me and because I was always around 
great tour players and some of the greatest players in the game at a young age and watch their successes, you know, watch my dad have success with them and my uncles. You know, my uncles worked with Curtis Strange and Lanny Watkins and the Ben Crenshaws of the world, stuff like that. And when you would watch that kind of interaction between the player and, and the instructor that, you know, it's always made me want to just say, you know, when I like it when there's a struggle, you know, when they win, it's easy. You know, it's fun. It's amazing experience. But, you know, the struggle and the fight, you know, there was a, a couple of years ago where DJ wasn't winning major champion, hadn't won a major championship and, and wasn't getting out of his game what he thought he should get out of it. And, you know, Brooks hadn't really won any big tournaments. You know, Ricky Fowler's going through that right now. Ricky, everybody wants him to win a major championship and he thinks he should win one. And I think, you know, when you are faced with these situations, you know, you sit down and you, you know, I'm constantly reaffirming to the player what we're doing, that everything's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. You know, that you're not going to lose it. You know, that you, you know, Jimmy Walker, you know, didn't play great last week at the US Open. He'd been playing good. He came in, you know, he's walking, you know, he had all his, his bags on Sunday. He was getting ready to leave the golf course and he looked at me and he just said, man, I played off. You know, I didn't like the way I played this week. Didn't feel it. And I said to him, I, I made a promise to you when we started, you know, talking about your golf swing that I was going to tell you the same thing all the time. And I said, we do the exact same thing moving forward that we were doing before we got here this week. One bad week isn't going to derail what we're doing because we know what we're doing is working. You know, he finished second at the players. You know, he's been finishing, you know, had some good finishes, some top tens. And I said, so I said to him, I said, go home take a couple of days off and then we get straight back to work with the plan. And the plan is, this is what we're doing. And I'm constantly touching base with all of the players that I work with on, this is what we're doing. These are the keys, you know, I'm sending pictures and videos and, you know, side-by-side comparisons on, you know, what we're doing so that they always have a very clear picture as to what the process is and which direction that we're going to go. And I always tell them, the guys, listen, I'm going to keep telling you the same thing. Whether you shoot 75, 78, miss the cut, or you shoot 62 and 65 and win the tournament. I'm going to tell you the same thing because this is the path that I believe is the right way for you to, to move forward. And, and if the player, and I always say to guys, listen, if you don't agree, that's fine. Then, then obviously this isn't going to work out, but I think it's important to, to tell the player, and to have people, you know, you know, I always go back to other sports, you know, and you and I talk about that all the time. If Tom Brady throws an interception on the first drive, they're going to go back out and basically run the same plays. Sure. And so I think it's important as, a, as an instructor to believe enough in what you're doing and draw the picture for the student so that he believes and he's on the team with you. Right. And then you guys, as, and then as a team, you say, listen – this is what we're doing. This is what we know is going to help you improve. And that's where I think technology comes in. We can say, listen, we know you play your best when you're doing these things. We know you're playing best when your numbers are these. We know your your sequence is the best in 3D when it looks like this. We know the way your your footwork works on, on force plates. We know all of this stuff. So we're not going to let one bad round go by the wayside. And I sure. think you know, that's where you know the, the coach in all of us kicks in and so 
to me, that's that's the most important thing. Agree, agree. It's never all gas and no break. There are times to circle the wagons and it's a revisiting back to the process, back to the plan, which I love. And it's uh, clear and concisely delivered back to uh, back to that blueprint. So you've spent time around the best players in the game. And from that experience, what have you come to understand about what differentiates good from great and then great to world-class at that, uh, at that tour level? And are there a set of, I think, things that I like to define or we like to define at Altus as separating skills, things that the world-class players do that those that you're trying to grow up, whether they be mini-tour players or junior players, need to possess? I think it's important that what I've seen to me, to be a great player, I mean, a great, great player at whatever level you're going to play, you have to have a very definable skill that is very, very, you can quantify it and it's, it's, it's off the charts. You have to be good and have to be almost great at something. Everybody at the amateur level has that guy that's a great player at their club, that's a great, you know, that's great in the club championship, that... He doesn't hit it that great. He doesn't have the best golf swing, but he doesn't make any mistakes, right? So he's great at course management. He's not going to beat himself. Doesn't make a lot of double or triple bogeys. Maybe he doesn't hit it miles, but he's great at managing his game. You know, at the elite level, you know, Dustin Johnson is an unbelievable driver of the golf ball. Brooks is an unbelievable driver of the golf ball. You know, Ricky Fowler's a great putter. You know, when guys like Luke Donald, who wasn't, you know, necessarily the longest player in the world, when he was number one in the world, you know, he was the best in the world from 150 and in and was an unbelievable, one of the best putters in the world. Mm -hmm. So I always think it's important if you're going to progress at a very, very high level, you have to be great at, at, at one main thing. And then you can kind of, you have to have a bona fide strength that you can lean on. And I really don't care, Cam, what that strength is. I wouldn't care if it was short game. I wouldn't care if it was somebody that was a great putter great driver of the golf ball. But when I look at players and look at, you know, trying to play, you know, from a, you know, from a, you know, that are going to try and compete at a high level, you want to have a bona fide strength. And what I see a lot of in the kind of mini tour range and, and the college and the high school ranges, I think a lot of players are trying to get great at five, six, seven things. And they're kind of average at all of them. They're not really great in any category. They're just kind of average across the board, so nothing really stands out. Whereas the first time I met Brooks, you know, he certainly, you know, he missed his, he didn't get his card in the U.S. He wasn't, you know, superstar. He didn't win the walk, wasn't on the Walker Cup, didn't win the U.S. Am. I mean, Brooks wasn't a superstar amateur player, and he missed first, you know, didn't get in, didn't get his card in the U.S. Went to Europe, didn't get his card in Europe, and then was on the Challenge Tour. But the first time I watched him hit golf balls, he had speed. He had speed to burn, and I knew with that speed, the rest of it was going to be easy to fix because he had a strength that you just can't teach. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like when you watch great putters, right? You talk to Brad Faxon about putter putting, he'll tell you he's a great putter, right? He'll say, listen, what's the best part of your game? I'm a great putter. And take him over, you watch him putt, and you go, yeah, you're a great putter. <laughs> you watch somebody that's, you know, a player, what's the strength of your game? I'm always asking players, listen, tell me what the strength of your game is. And you'll have somebody that's got a strength that will tell you that immediately. They'll go, I'm a really good driver of the ball. So what I think I try to do, and I know you guys do this, and, and you and Corey at Altus, I think you guys are great at doing this, is you say, okay, let's put you in positions and test your skills. 
and let's see if you're a great driver of the golf ball. Let's see if you're a great putter. Let's see if your short game is great. And I'm always asking players that are trying to play, you know, competitively, listen, tell me about your game. What are you great at? I'm a great driver of the golf ball. Okay, let's see that. Let's take you out on the golf course and let's go play three or four holes and watch you drive the golf ball and put you on some tough holes and see if you're a great driver of the golf ball. Let's put you on track, man, and put you in a combine situation and give you some parameters and go, oh, you're right. You are a great driver of the golf ball. If you tell me you're a great putter, I'm going to go ahead and take a look at your stroke. I'm going to take a look at kind of what the ball does. I'm going to take a look, get, you know, get some SAM data and then go put you through a battery of tests and go, yeah, you're a great putter. And I think it's very important to quantify what your skills are and to quantify as a player what your strengths are. And I think that's to me, you know, you do that, Jordan, everybody, you know, you told me once years ago when you're first, when we met years ago, Jordan, I think was still in high school. And I asked you if you were working with any good players. And I've always said this, and I've always talked about this, this conversation we had. And I, you, you told me about Jordan and you talked to me about, you know, he was, I think he was, you know, 14, 15. And I said, you know, tell me about his game. And you said, you know, he's just really good at playing the game of golf. And you said nothing really jumps out at you. Like he's not a, you know, he's not a bomber. He just, but he's just great at playing the game of golf. When I look at Jordan and look at, you know, to me, one of his great strengths is he plays, is playing the game of golf. You know, his strength as a player is he knows how to play the game of golf. So I look at all the players that I work with and I try and build and create and, and help them have a strength. If you can build a player to have a strength, then they've got something to lean on. Then they know that they're good at one thing. And then they feel a lot more confident about their game because they're not thinking, you know, I'm just not really great at doing this. I'm not really great at doing that. And I think having a strength is, is huge. And I think as instructors, your job as an instructor is to help them have your students, help them have a strength, a really definable, quantifiable strength that you go, yeah, you are a great iron player. Right. Now, let's build the other parts of the game around the fact that you're a great iron player. Beyond talking at depth there about the physical strengths, how about the things that we can't see? What top two or even three factors would you say you're looking for to identify in a junior talent or you're looking to cultivate in a junior talent or even beyond that, your professional clients? What are the things that we can't see, that the, the, the tactical skills, the self-confidence? Yes, yeah, certainly. When I look at scores, and you do this as well, when I look at junior scores and stuff like that and look at junior golfers, I look at how many times they, you know, they shoot in the 80s. And I look at kind of, you know, when I'm looking at scores and I always ask players, listen, what's the lowest round of golf you shot in a tournament this year? And then what's the highest? And if that gap is kind of, you know, I've shot in the 60s, you know, I you know, shot 69 in a tournament. And what, okay, what's the highest score? 86. To me, the gap has to close. And I think that, you know, there's a care factor. There's a, you know, not phoning it in the great ones that I, that, that I've been around, they're unbelievable competitors. You know, it, you know, they want to win. They're self-motivated and they will do anything that they have to do to get better and to improve. And, you know, I think all of the great players on tour, you know, you can kind of define their strengths, right? You know, Dustin, 
you know, to, is to me is the prime example. I mean, Dustin's always been known for his, his distance and his length. But what's helped him become number one in the world and helped him win his first major is he became a great wedge player. And I think the great players, in my opinion, turn you know weaknesses into strengths. That's obviously, Cam, a cliche. We know that, right? But how many people are re- willing to actually do it? How many people are willing to look at what their stats are and look at what they're not good at and then go, okay, I'm going to make myself good at that. I'm going to do all of the work, you know, necessary to help myself improve that. Because, you know, from a junior golf standpoint, you see it every day. The junior golfers practice what they're good at. They stand there and they practice what they're good at. And, you know, I think it's important, you know, to figure out, you know, yes, like I said, it's important to build a strength. Right. But you've got to look at the weaknesses as well. And you can't have, you have to be proficient across the board to me in order to compete at a really high level. You can't be, you know, you see it you know, day in and day out. I mean, you know, especially working with as many great juniors as, as you have, you know, you can't just be a great driver of the golf ball. You spoke to commitment and purpose. Can you give a picture of the commitment and purpose you see from your best players and maybe a, maybe speak specifically to what Dustin did, how many hours a day or how many reps in the practice that he employed to improve that weakness, which was his wedge play? Yeah, I think in, in Dustin's case, um, he just put the work in. I mean, the majority of his of his warm-up now is is spent, you know, wedge shots. You know, so if he's going to warm up at a, at a tournament, you know, no, DJ's rare in that he likes a long warm-up. So he's kind of in the hour and a half range of, of hitting balls, you know, before he goes out and plays. And I pretty much say for the last three years now, an hour to an hour and 15 minutes of that is from 150 yards and in, which is his wedge work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'd love to tell you that there's a formula behind it. The formula is he does the work. Sweat equity. Uh, you know, yeah, sweat equity. I think, you know, in, in Brooks's case, I mean, you know, one of the things that Brooks has done, you know, is the amount of time, you know, he and DJ is, they put the work in, in the gym. You know, those guys on the road go to, go, go to the gym, you know, seven days a week. You know, Brooks was in the gym lifting weights Sunday morning, the last two Sunday mornings before the U.S. Open. He did it on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Th- I mean, if he plays early, he works out late. If he plays late, he works out early. And he, on, on the road, he doesn't miss a workout. And it's, again, all of this stuff are cliches. We know this stuff as, as coaches. We know this stuff as players. But who's actually willing to do the work? Yeah. You know, you get a bunch of kids old, like I do. Everyone says, what are your goals? Ah, you know, I want to be the, you know, want to be the best player in the world, right? I mean, how many times have you heard that, right? You've, we've all heard that, right? Everybody, every junior golfer, every college golfer, everybody that's trying to get on the PJ Tour, what are your goals? Oh, I want to win majors. I want to do this. I want to, whatever the goal is, I always say to people, okay, tell me what you're doing to make that happen. I always want to know what they're doing. Because everybody says it, but what I think defines and, and separates, you know, the best that I've seen is they put the work in. Mm-hmm. They're willing to work harder and they're willing, you know, they're willing to fail more. They're willing to put themselves in situations to where they're going to figure out, you know, can they do it or can they not do it? And, you know, we, we keep talking about it. You know, failure is a huge part of this. Massive part of it. I think that the people that I know, unless they're unbelievably, you know, just so talented, the great ones are unbelievably self-motivated. 
They don't need someone to tell them to work hard. They don't need, you know, as a junior and, and as your know, college, they don't need the coach. They don't need their parents. They don't need anybody to tell them to do anything. You know, I, I think that, you know, if you look at the great ones, you know, Tiger Woods was unbelievably self-motivated. You know, I was around him. He always wanted to practice, always wanted to hit balls, always wanted to, you know, work harder. He, he always wanted to do that. And to me, the great ones are very, very highly, highly self-motivated and are willing to do whatever they have to do to win. Yeah. A purpose is the engine that drives elite performance in my mind. And the players that stand up and say, I can, I will just watch me. Those are the players that I point a finger at or I put in the back of my mind as the players that are likely to continue to climb that ladder. So I couldn't agree with you more. Unpacking practice just a bit further, a pretty esoteric question, I guess, but I'll ask it anyway. If you were pre- preparing one of your players to compete in a contest for which the fate of humanity depended upon them winning, how would you prepare them? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. You know, to me, I'll, I'll go back to the thing I always go back to. I think that, you know, they're going to actually have to perform. So I'm going to try and make, you know, everything that they're working on as simple and, and as easy a situation. So they can just go out and perform. You know, the practice is all great, but, you know, eventually you got to go out and play. And so I think that it's easy now to be in practice mode, you know, and, and I try and constantly get the people I work with, you know, I'm far more interested in what they're doing on the golf course than what they're doing on the driving range, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's where I think a lot of the shot tracking, you know, stuff now, I mean, you know, that I know that you, you're big on keeping stats, um, you know, Cobra Golf, who, who, who I work really closely with, they've worked with Arcos to put sensors in all of the golf clubs so that we can track what the players are doing on the golf course as opposed to what we're doing just in practice. So I think that what I always try and get the guys and the players that I work with is to try and put them in as many situations from a practice standpoint as, you know, there are consequences to what they're doing from a practice standpoint. And you know, they have to take ownership of what they're doing from a practice standpoint, for sure. Mm-hmm. Because golf is unlike, you know, in team sports, it's it's interesting, Cam. You know, in team sports, if you're playing, you know, if you're the high school quarterback and you're in, in high school and you, you're in practice and you throw four interceptions, you know what happens? You get benched. You go sit the bench. They bring somebody else in. And you know what you don't do? You don't go practice more. You don't go mimic Nobody talks to you because they just sit you on the be- They sit your ass on the bench. <laughs> Somehow in other sports, team sports, you figure it out real quick. And then eventually the coach will go, hey, do you want to come back in and run this play the way that you, we've been practicing and the way we've seen you do it before? And somehow in team sports, figure that stuff out real quick. But in golf, what we sit there and do is let's practice some more. Let's mimic some more. Let's go in here like that. <laughs> and so... You know, I think that trying to think in terms of, you know, the performance element of it as opposed to the practice side of it, to me, playing more, putting yourself in pressure situations more when you're practicing, you know, to me is is the thing that's going to help you when it's on the line and you have to perform. Yeah, to me, I, I think golf should be practiced like, you know, the two-minute offense. You know, you should put your players in positions and in situations to where they have to run the two-minute offense. You put them on the 30-yard line and say, you've got the ball, go score. And don't go throw, don't throw an interception, don't get any penalties, and, you know, don't fumble. You have to, you have to perform. 
in a very condensed time. And that's what the two-minute offense is in football. So I always try and have the, the guys that I work with get into pressure and game type situations so that when they go and get in those situations as you know on the golf course, it's not a surprise and they're used to it. You're answering a question that I had that was going to be a follow-up of how do you get your players to perform under pressure? And that's by putting them under pressure. Can you give the audience some practical examples, a couple of things maybe they can go out and, and try? You know, I, I've started with a lot of the, specifically with a lot of the juniors and, you know, the people that are trying to get on tour. I've taken more of kind of the team approach to it, you know, and used that analogy before and said, listen, we're trying to hit the golf ball. We're trying to hit a fade. Let's say we're trying to hit a fade with a player. We know the position the club is in, you know, once the player is proficient, right? If this is a player that's trying to compete at a very, you know, at a high level and compete in competitions, having the mindset of saying, listen, we're trying to hit fades. You've just hit four snap hooks in a row in another sport. That's just unacceptable. You just can't do that. You mm -hmm. can't, you know, whatever position you would be playing, if it was a team sport, somebody would pull you aside and say, that's basically just unacceptable. And what I've tried to, to, to instill in the players is say, listen, when you're practicing on your own and you're by yourself, and let's say you're working with shapes and you're trying to hit the golf ball specific directions, you have to think about it in terms of you're the quarterback of the football team. So if you're trying to give yourself, I, I'll give my guys, you know, students, you know, 10, 15, 20 ball challenges. Let's, if we're trying to fade the golf ball, we're going to try and start all 15 balls left of the target and have them curve. And let's see if we can have them not curve right of the target. You know, use the flag as the threshold and say, all right, hit 15 balls and have all of them kind of start in the same direction. And I think if you can start to think about it and say, okay, if you miss one, if you if you're trying to hit a fade and you hit a snap hook, that's the that's the equivalent of throwing an interception mm -hmm. as, a, as a quarterback. You just threw an interception and the other team's got the ball and it's going to hurt our chances to win. And so I think that's what I've always tried to do is is put them in situations, get them to think like a team sport. You know, you're the running back, you just fumbled, right? And we're we're going to lose them. And I don't think golfers ever do that because golfers are constantly thinking in terms of it's an individual sport, right? Right, for sure. What I try and get the guys to think of is, listen, imagine you're on a team and this is a practice and you just miss your block right. four times in a row. What's the coach going to say to you? Yeah, benched. Yeah, come back another time. <laughs> come back another time. So having that kind of mindset, I think, is huge. And, and you know, having you know, the golfer think more like an athlete first and a golfer second. You know, yeah. having them have this idea that it's an athletic sport, it's a game, what's the best way to play the game and, and you know, really, you know, improve from there. How about confidence? In your mind, where does it come from? And I think want to understand here is specifically relative to the players you coach rather than just generally where you think confidence comes from. But all of your players seem to find confidence in the same area or from the same source. Or does each person find confidence in a, in a little different way? Yeah, I think everybody kind of goes through it differently. You know, some some people are, again, are, are incredibly confident people that that you don't really have to say a lot to that are very much self-motivated, very much believe in themselves and their ability and, and things like that. 
but then there are guys that you know are less confident that that needs you to kind of paint the picture for them and and be the cheerleader and and be the the person that's going to you know try and 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 help them so i think a lot of it is you know there's no real kind of one answer i think a lot of it is the player based and based off of what the individual does and and doesn't do mm-hmm. so but i think you can learn a lot by looking at at what type of learners they are. I mean, you and I spend a lot of time trying to figure out you know, how people learn, you know, what makes them tick. And so to me, the communication aspect of things is to take a look at, you know, what they do, what their backgrounds are, you know, how they handle different situations. I think body language is huge. You know, I remember, you know, listening to the head coach at University of Connecticut, w- the women's coach, you know, he said, you have a bad attitude and b- bad body language, you will never play. Mm-hmm. And to me, the confidence comes from body language. I'm always looking at players' body language, specifically when they practice, you know, how they handle adversity, how they handle hitting bad shots. You know, body language is a big thing for me. And I think you look at, you know, guys like Dustin and Brooks who have tremendous confidence, you know, their body language exudes that they have a lot of confidence. You know, in the beginning, I think a lot of people used to think Dustin didn't care. You know, that nothing bothered him and that was a hindrance. Now everybody talks about how great it is. Right. right? Sure. Absolutely. You could, never get, you could never get Jordan to do what Dustin does, yeah, right? Without ne- that's, that's just not the person he is. You know, he's a different person. So I, I think it's you look at players individually and look at how they do things. And, and really, you know, just kind of go, you know, based off of what type of personalities they are. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think, again, you can't, you can't put everybody in one box. You have to keep trying to figure out what's going to make this player tick, what's going to work for this player, and then, you know, work from there. Right. I think that asking a person to behave inwardly or outwardly in a manner that is, let's say, normalized to some standard is just as preposterous as asking someone to swing in a certain way and fit a certain mold. So I couldn't agree with you more there. So give me the perspective. I know it from from my stance or my, my lens, I guess you could say. But what's your objective Monday through Wednesday when you're at a tour event? It certainly runs the gamut of, man, this player's playing great. I don't need to do any work with him or her. And this player's playing garbage. And so therefore, there's going to be a big set of tools brought out and, and, and we may need to do some, um, do some work here. But overall objective and, and how do you shift in a way that uh, increases the chance of that player playing well in the days leading up to an event? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of, you know, what I try and do now, Cam, you know, certainly at the elite level on tour is to try and do a lot of the the big work away from the tournament to try and do it when we're home. And then so when we're at the tournament, we can just kind of focus on playing. I mean, certainly I'm always checking what they're doing, you know, physically, you know, where their golf swing is at the moment. And, um, you know, like last week or two weeks ago at the U.S. Open, you know, Dustin's just coming off a win. So we're we're just trying to kind of monitor and maintain everything, you know, that he's doing. Uh, Brooks, you know, was pretty, to be honest, was playing awful when he got there. Didn't play good in, in, in Memphis, even though he made the cut. So we had to go back in and, and kind of focus on, you know, some of the basic fundamentals that we know are kind of, you know, important for, for Brooks. You know, with guys like, you know, Jimmy Walker, we just basically were trying to do the exact same thing. You know, look at, you know, Jimmy likes to look at video, likes to look at positions. So, you know, I'm kind of across the gamut because I've got, you know, four guys that I work with. They're all different. You know, Brooks and DJ are similar, but, you know, they're, they, they kind of, their personalities are different. You know, some guys want a lot of information. Brooks and DJ don't want a lot of information. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of what we do with those guys is just basically saying, listen, you know, 
DJ likes to look at his golf swing. Brooks likes to look at his golf swing, you know, and then, you know, Ricky, you know, likes to kind of talk about things. Jimmy likes to talk about things and, you know, Brooks and DJ don't. So I think, you know, get them out on the golf course, walk nine, you know, walk, you know, nine, 18 holes, talk about strategy, talk about where you're going to miss it. And then, you know, I just interject, you know, I just say, listen, you know, if they hit a bad shot, I'll say, listen, you know, that you could maybe, you know, Brooks's case, Brooks's, you know, whatever their swing faults are, I always go back to that. To me, that's my, alt, that's always my control alt delete. You know, <laughs> listen, you know, that if, if they hit a bad shot, we know that the reason why you hit that shot is this. So let's make sure that we, we, we keep doing this thing and again, draw the picture, but I try not to say too much. You know, obviously there are times where they're playing bad that you have to get in there and, you know, you know, say a lot, but you know, I also say to the guys all the time, listen, okay, you gotta, you gotta gut it out today. Maybe you don't have your best stuff and you know what? Hit the golf ball one shape, you know, try and keep the golf ball in play as much as possible. And cause it's not always going to be perfect. You know, you're not always going to have your, your best stuff. I think that's the myth, you know, certainly with juniors, they think they're going to play good all the time. <laughs> think all these guys play great all the time. And, and a lot of times I think, during the week, I think a lot of what I do as an instructor, and I think you'd, you'd feel the same way. I think more at tournaments, Cam, it's what, what I don't say that's important mm-hmm. as opposed to what I do say. Cause I think sometimes, you know, when you first get out and you're working with guys, you just want to kind of, you know, be the end all be all and tell them everything. Sometimes, it, you know, again, it's what you don't say. It's what you don't tell them. There are a lot of times, you know, I, I'm, I, Talking to Sean Foley once, Sean said, listen, what we kind of do on tour is triage. You know, we're just doing triage work. It's a war zone out there because it is. You know, golf instruction is, you know, it's 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 in the trenches. Um, I think a little bit of what we're trying to do is evaluate what do they need. You know, do we need to kind of do open heart surgery right here, you know, on the battlefield? Or can we stabilize them and, and get them through today and then work on it after the round? And I think that you know, I'm big in, in players going out and playing golf, not playing golf swing. You know, I don't want players going out and, and thinking and having a lot of thoughts in their head. I want them to go out and play. And so we tend to, to do all the work. I, I, you know, I don't really give them a lot of technical things to work on you know, going out on the golf course. You know, the one thing I always say to Brooks and DJ, keep your speed up, you know, commit to every shot, you know, keep your speed up, keep your body turning because that's kind of their faults. And I'll, you know, with, you know, Ricky and, and Jimmy right now, I'll give them one kind of thing to, to focus on and say, listen, be conscious of this today, but go out and play. Yeah, I loved what you told Brooks last year before the final round when it would have been so easy to say tactically run a different game plan, but, and you could tell a story, but it was like, no, you do you because you do you really, really yeah. well. Be, be aggressive, be assertive. Yeah. Be, be yourself. I, I said the same thing to him on Sunday. You know, at Shinnecock, I said, stay aggressive today and go out and and just be who you are. You know, don't go out and play the way you think you need to play. Just go out, do what you do. And if you do what you do, you're going to be tough to beat. If you play the way you play, you're going to be tough to beat. And I, you know, I, the last thing I think it's, it's hard. The last thing you want to do coming off a, a golf tournament, regardless of what level you're playing at is to go, man, I should have done that. Oh, I should have done that. Cause we hear that all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'd rather 
you know, I always say to players, listen, you're going to hit bad shots, but spend more time focusing today, playing golf on trying to hit good shots as opposed to trying to not hit bad shots. I think most golfers go out and when they get into trouble, go out to try and not hit bad shots. Yeah, they play fearful golf. Especially junior golfers. I always say to them, listen, you're going to make bad swings today. But if you make bad swings trying to make good swings, that's fine. If you make bad swings because you're standing up there trying to not hit it in the... If you're trying to not hit it in the water off the tee and you hit it in the water off the tee, that's the worst thing. I don't mind it if you hit it in the water, but if you're trying to hit a good shot and you were committed, you know, I think that's huge. So, yeah, again, I always... Just try and have them think and try and instill in them, you're an athlete. Go out and react. Yeah, the last thing I want any player doing is playing from a place of fear, playing from a place of avoidance. and React to what's happening because things are going to happen, but go out and react to what happens. Yeah, the expression that I oftentimes use is stop shooting on yourself. I should have done this. I should have done that. It's it's a great one that kind of sticks in in a kid's mind. So. One final question. You've been amazingly accommodating and generous with your time. And even more importantly than time is the knowledge that you've built over the many decades you've been exposed to this game. For the parent out there, for the player out there, be it a junior, collegiate or professional player, how would you advise a person going about selecting a coach? What are the pitfalls to look out for? What are the, uh, I guess, the most important things to look for? I think one of the things you want to do as a, as a, as a player you know, when I first started working with Brooks, I watched him hit some shots and he was hitting draws and he had a bad shot. And, you know, he's working with an instructor. He was, you know, and he said to me, man, I hate hitting draws. I hate hitting draws. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. You hate hitting draws. And, I, and he said, yeah. And I said, so why are you hitting draws? And he said, well, the instructor I'm, I'm working with wants me to hit those. And I said, so let me get straight. You'd rather fade it? And he said, yeah. I said, you know, that's not the instructor's fault, right? <laughs> That's your fault. So I think that as a player, you want to do your homework. And as a parent, you want to say, listen, what's my son doing? What are the areas that I think, you know, are my daughter? And, and what are the areas I think I can help? And find a coach that is kind of in, in keeping with, you know, kind of the ethos of the direction you're trying to have yourself or your, your, your child go to as, as a player or as you're trying to, to go and say, listen, you know, these are the things that this this coach believes in and, and do your homework. You know, I, when, when, when players at the elite level, tour players want to work with me and say, listen, I'd like to work with you. I'm going to fly in and spend some time with you. I do my homework. I know what they do. I know what they've been trying to do. I know what their stats are. I know what their, their tendencies are. I know what their strengths are. I know what their weaknesses are. And, you know, as an, as a player, you should be able to come to a coach and say, listen, this is what I do as a player this is where I feel like I could get better. And, you know, I like the way you work with players and stuff like that. And I think, you know, the impetus is as much on the player as it is on the coach, for sure. Yeah, I understand. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. I'm hoping you get to enjoy this third U.S. Open. I'm, I'm hoping you get to commemorate it in some sort of way. Any strange tattoos uh, <laughs> on, your, on your body? <laughs> None of those. We'll, we'll get together for dinner soon. There we go. I appreciate it, mate. And... One last thing, any way the audience can uh, research more, where can they find out more about, uh, about yeah, Claude Harmon? I mean, you know, we've, we've got our, our, our learning center here down in Florida, butchharmonfloridian.com. You can follow me on, you know, social media, Claude Harmon, number three. And, um, you know, I'm just a golf instructor. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a mogul like you yet. You're, you're curing golf cancer, though. We appreciate you for that. So you've got the web, you've got the, 
the socials and uh, we'll certainly put the word out to get more people uh, following and um, seeking your insight. Again, I appreciate it, mate. Great to talk to you. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge.